0: That's Luke chapter 17, starting at verse 22. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken, and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather.
1: So this is the letter of Jude, page 1233. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.
2: On more than one occasion, I was removed from the role of bedtime storyteller to small children. The yellow card, or benching, was issued as a result of stories so graphic and electrifying that rather than children being calmed and readied for sleep, they needed three further hours as they huddled terrified under their duvets of comfort and assurance. Regularly featuring in the made-up fables was the Beast of Bob Mimore. It was at a time when sightings of large predatory cats were rare in the United Kingdom. And the plot usually involved the beast breaking into children's rooms, seizing one or other from their beds, dragging them off to its lair, only subsequently to be tracked down and rescued by a daring sibling. I couldn't think what the problem was. (laughs) Now, the language in this week's passage might well leave us similarly terrified, certainly not before the 9 o'clock watershed, certainly at least a 15 rating warning this episode contains strong language and disturbing scenes. You remember from last week that Jude is the brother of James, the brother of Jesus, that Jude, probably writing in the mid-60s AD, and that Jude is probably in the church in Jerusalem, and that he had wanted to write a different letter. Verse 3, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So he finds himself compelled to dash off this letter and get it in the post. What caused this urgent note? Verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, from the beginning of verse 4, there are at least seven sections to the letter, each one introduced by the these people. You see verse 4, certain people. Verse 8, these people. Verse 10, these people. Verse twelve, these and so on. And in each case, in the first four or five, what Jude does is to describe the false teachers and what's wrong with them. Before then, assuring us. So it is gripping. It gra- gripping. It is graphic. It is strong stuff. But it's full of reassurance. And today I want us to look at just three sections, verses 4 through 11. There are secret agents who deceive, don't panic. There are dirty dreamers who disrespect, don't be naive. There are dumb beasts who destroy, don't despair. So subtle secret agents who deceive God's people, don't panic. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. That's translated by some as settled in alongside, others as slipped in by the side door, or come in stealthily. So these false teachers, you know, they haven't kind of bought into the false teacher stash. They haven't got t-shirts with 72-point font emblazoned W-O-L-F across the front. They aren't like the big vehicle, you know, this vehicle is a false teacher, with a flashing light. They are past masters at deception. I've asked myself, you know, did they do it deliberately? Were they self-consciously aware that they were false teachers, posers? And I'm not sure necessarily they were. I suspect they probably thought they were doing all the right things. How to spot them. Well, their moral conduct, or rather the moral conduct they encourage, they pervert, verse 4, the grace of our God into sensuality. And that word always carries sexual connotations. And they deny our only Master and Lord. That word for Lord is divine, our only Master and God, Jesus Christ. So they downplay the uniqueness of Jesus And they play off the grace of God against the holiness of God. They teach grace without repentance. They hold out forgiveness. They don't think of obedience. They set God's grace over against God's holiness. Come to the Lord Jesus. Live as you like now. You're forgiven anyway. They deny the uniqueness of Jesus. Jesus is just one voice. He's not the only voice. He's not the only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There are other voices. Everybody's truth is equally valid. You have your understanding, I have mine. There are many views. Now, verse 4 might leave us quaking that false teachers have infiltrated the church so quickly in just 30 years. What to do? And so Jude assures his readers, don't panic. Verse 5, God knows how to save his people and destroy his enemies. Verse 6, God is able to keep the arrogant false teacher for judgment at the end. Verse 7, God has done this before. He will do it again. Eternal punishment awaits those who deceive God's people. Each of these is perfectly chosen. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. You know, God is perfectly able to cope with a church which appears to have within it those who are deceivers. He did it in the desert, in the wilderness, and saved his people. He'll save you. Verse six probably refers to Genesis chapter six where upstart angelic beings overstepped the mark of their allotted responsibility. The angels who did not stay within their own position or authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So those who overstepped the mark in Genesis six, they are being kept for the final judgment. We'll look at that next week. But God can deal with this. Verse seven. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, it's worth pausing on Sodom and Gomorrah because it helps us, I think, to get hold of these false teachers. You may or may not know the incident. The city of Sodom was infamous for its sexual depravity, both homosexual and heterosexual rape were the norm. It wasn't safe to leave the house after dark, the curfew, nobody needed to enforce it. Nobody dared go out. The whole city was involved, and it was impossible to find even a tiny number who weren't part of it. So I think it is worth turning back to page 16. Keep a finger in Jude, you'll never find him again. Page 16, and Genesis chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Page 16. So these men from God come to visit Sodom and Goro to find out if it's as bad as everybody says. And they stop off with Lot to stay the night with him. Verse 4, before chapter 19, verse 4, page 16, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, some have argued that the phrase, that we may know them, does not refer to sexual activity. And they suggest that the sin of Sodom was a failure of hospitality. That simply cannot be sustained. Repeatedly in Genesis, to know a woman or a man in this context, this kind of context, is to have sex with them. Adam knew Eve, and she conceived a child. Judah knew Tamar and she conceived. I don't know how your biology is, but to say that he knew her and she conceived a child suggests to me that they went to a little more than dinner together that night. So the issue in Sodom is not only heterosexual but homosexual rape. And thus, I suspect that the false teachers in the churches to which Jude is writing were suggesting, you know, anything goes when it comes to sexuality. Marriage, that's such an old-fashioned thing. You know, you've got to live together. I really love her. Rather than the Bible's teaching that the only safe sex, the only good sex is between one man and one woman in an exclusive lifelong relationship, they were arguing that God's grace and forgiveness, well, marriage is so old-fashioned. Now I know this is a hot topic and I want to stress stress that that every single person in this room is a sexual sinner and that I speak to you as someone who is far from perfect, acutely aware of my own failings. I also want to stress that those who experience temptation to homosexual sex and those who have failed sexually are profoundly welcome amongst us. You know, we're a whole church full of broken and fallen people acutely aware of our own need for forgiveness. We've had members on our staff team here at St. Helens at the most senior levels who have been tempted to homosexual sex. Many dearly loved friends and members of the congregation, some in front of me now, who experience that. But God teaches that his good gift of sex is for a relationship between one man and one woman in lifelong, legally and publicly recognized union. And all heterosexual sex outside of marriage is damaging to both partners. Damaging psychologically. Damaging to future lifelong partners of that individual. Damaging for children. And any act of homosexual sex, the Bible teaches, is unnatural in the sense, if I may put it like this, that there is not a natural fit between the male member and the female. There's a guy called Robert Gagnon. He's a great Bible scholar. He's written really the um, key work on this, the Bible and homosexual practice. It's a few years back now. He puts it like this. Put in more crude term, Paul in effect argues that even pagans who have no access to the book of Leviticus should know that same-sex eroticism is contrary to nature because the primary sex organs fit male to female, not female to female, or male to male. For Paul, it was a simple matter of common-sense observation of human anatomy and procreative function that even pagans otherwise oblivious to God's direct revelation in the Bible, had no excuse for not knowing. And Jude would appear to agree. In Sodom and Gomorrah, they pursued unnatural desire, and they served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, if you want to read more on this, there's this book, Revolutionary Sex, that you can find On the bookstall, there at the back. There's a sermon from July 2019 The Bible, Sexuality and Marriage. You can easily download that. There's an outstanding essay by a friend of mine called Vaughan Roberts in response to Stephen Croft's recent writings. And if you just Google Croft and Roberts, Vaughan Roberts, Stephen Croft, you can read that essay. It's really excellent. But Jude's point is, look, this, look, there are subtle secret agents who deceive God's people, but but, but don't panic. Uh, God's always been able to save his people. There's nothing new here. God keeps those who have gone beyond the boundaries, ready for judgment on the final day. And then verse 7, ultimately, there will be eternal punishment for those who live in rebellion against God. But in verses 8 and 9, he goes further, not only secret agents, also what I'm going to call dirty dreamers, arrogant ones, who disrespect God's word, verses 8 and 9. Yet in like manner, these people, this is the second main section, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, this is actually a further reflection on verses 3 and 4. Do you remember in verse 3, he talked about the faith once for all time delivered to the saints. He's talking about the revelation that we have in Jesus Christ delivered to us by Jesus' appointed spokesmen, the apostles. That is an objective truth, the faith once for all time delivered to the saints. And rather than trusting the faith once for all delivered to the saints, these guys rely instead on their own dreams, verse 8. And relying on their own dreams, they defile the flesh, rejecting authority, that is the authority of God's word, and at the same time blaspheming the glorious ones, I take it, that is those who have lived according to God's word and who taught God's word, the apostles and others like them. Now, this has to be so. You see, once you rule out or go beyond or stop short of what God from outside has shown us, all you've got left is your own best shot. Without revelation from God, all you've got is speculation from man. So once we feel we can be progressive and progress... Beyond God's revelation, once for all time delivered, we regress into speculation. It's just guesswork. If we reject the authority of God's word, all we're left with is the subjectivity of human ideas. We may say it's been given to me in a dream, but there's no authority there. And actually, there is supreme arrogance there, because I'm saying, I think I know better than God. And so, verse 8 is really striking. There's so much in it, isn't there? They rely on their dreams. They defile the flesh. That is, they make themselves impure and dirty by their behavior. They reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. So there is moral impurity, they defile the flesh. There is intellectual arrogance, they reject authority. And there's sheer spiritual cheek. They blaspheme the glorious ones. If God has spoken finally, sufficiently, authoritatively, and if God has provided the faith once for all time delivered, However humble as pie I may sound, there is nothing more arrogant than puffing myself up and suggesting I know better. Who's the most humble man in the Bible? Do you know? Moses. Because he obeyed God's word. That's humility. I know better. How extraordinary arrogant. Now, I think we do need to think about the Church of England here. Some of us know that Church of England is engaged in a process that's designed to sort out its confusion around sexual conduct, particularly the confusion has had to do with homosexual conduct in so-called loving, stable relationships and whether that's acceptable in the church. And you'll hear some suggest that the Bible is unclear on the matter, and that simply cannot be maintained. You know, Alongside Robert Gagnon, there's also William Loder, who's Not himself wanting to sit under the teaching of God's word on this matter. He's a New Testament scholar and has written really the definitive book, The New Testament on Sexuality. I have read it cover to cover. It's actually not too heavy, to be honest. Well, it's heavy as a book, but it's not too heavy. Without differentiation, Paul condemns all with such sexual attitudes and acts. As they give expression to them. And then he says this the question is whether we should feel free to reach different conclusions from Paul. And he says he does. What arrogance! So there is the issue, and you'll hear others suggest that whilst God's word, once for all time delivered, condemns some homosexual acts, what the Bible is speaking about is not the kind of stable same-sex relations that we know in our culture. And they'll say, well, it was a different culture. They didn't have any understanding of loving same-sex sexual relationships. And that simply, again, is not true. True. I had breakfast in Nairobi. I had to be at a conference in Nairobi. I had breakfast with a dear friend of mine who very, very sadly subsequently died called Mike Ovey. And over breakfast, we were talking about this. And he said, um, have they not read Juvenal's satire? Now, I don't know what you do when somebody says that to you over breakfast and they're the principal of a theological college. I just kind of nodded, slightly choked on my mango juice and whatever it happened to be, and tried to pretend that I knew all about juvenile satire. but eventually I had to come clean. And Plato's Symposium, and Xenophon's Ephesian tale, and Clement of Alexandria, and on and on and on. Andrew Korn subsequently has spent three years following his retirement researching sexual attitudes from 200 BC to 200 AD in Roman and Jewish circles. I saw him last year for about an hour and a half or so. And he insists, having done the research, you simply cannot maintain that in the first century people had no understanding of loving, same-sex relationships. They did. Again and again and again, there is evidence for it. And the Bible speaks clearly against it. And so what Jude does in verse 9, then, is to comment on the arrogance of those who dare to set themselves up as an authority against God. Verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this is a tricky one. It's a piece of contemporary writing from the first century. It's not in the Bible. And rather like we use illustrations to illustrate the truth of a point, Jude is using an illustration from something that's not in the Bible that would have been common in the understanding of his readers. And there was a piece of writing that was, who knows what authority it had, about the devil and the archangel Michael contending over the body of Moses. And Jude says, look, Even the archangel Michael wouldn't seize God's position and declare judgment over the devil because that's God's job. And now these false teachers, they're stepping into God's shoes and declaring what's right and what's wrong when God has so openly and clearly said what is right and wrong. How dare they? Let me tell you about a conversation I had with one of the archbishops of Canterbury. I rang him, and he was kind enough to take my call personally. Actually, we'd arranged the time. You can't just kind of pick up the telephone to the archbishop. It was after a Sunday evening service. It was about nine o'clock, one Sunday evening. We'd had a busy day here, and we fixed for me to talk to him. Sunday evening. He'd been teaching that in some circumstances, he felt that it must be okay for same-sex sexual unions to be celebrated in the church. It wasn't this current archbishop as a previous one. I referred to Robert Gagnon. Loder hadn't been written at that stage, or hadn't he, he was around, but he hadn't written his book, and to various passages in the Bible, and the whole that the whole point of marriage in Scripture is an illustration of the relationship between Jesus and His Church, and the fact that one of our small group leaders had wondered what on earth the Archbishop was going on about when he was suggesting that somehow he knew better. Here's how he responded. I know what the Bible says, William, but I see in some sexual relationships between people of the same sex aspects of Christian conduct, kindness, love, gentleness. The Bible is a touchstone for our faith, but could it be that God is now saying to us that some of the things the Bible speaks against in the culture of the Bible can be viewed differently in our age? there's a huge amount to say about that, but Jude would say this. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They rely on their dreams, defiling the flesh and blaspheming the glorious ones. Even the archangel Michael didn't presume to pronounce judgment on the devil. This man thinks he knows better than God and the holy ones of old and can make it up for a new generation. The cheek of it, the arrogance of it, the depravity of it. Probably the best commentary, the best one I've come across on Jude is written by Michael Green. It really is outstanding. It's a short little book. He says this, progressive morality and progressive theology go in hand in hand with progressive deafness to God's word. And they result in progressive intellectual pride and progressive presumption. Secret agents, dirty dreamers, ignorant beasts. Verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 flows directly on from verse 8 and 9. The logic is tight. They arrogantly slur the great ones to whom God entrusted his word. They've got a nerve, is what verse 8 and 9 say. But in reality, verse 10, that is all they can do. I want us to study verse 10 very closely indeed. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Now, let's try and think about this. I'm going to give you an illustration, which I hope might help you to make sense of it. But God, from outside our created order, in and through the work of Jesus, speaks into creation, divine revelation. We have the faith once for all delivered. There is no other source of special revelation about God. Only he can tell us the things beyond the universe. Jesus is the only master and Lord, and he has delivered this truth to us once and for all time. What if we reject it? You see, if we reject it, we may want to hold that we're intelligent and sophisticated and intellectually superior, and we may be very, very clever. But the only knowledge base we have to go on is what we can observe from within the created order, what we can dream up ourselves. And so our knowledge and understanding is profoundly limited. All we've got to go on is what we can see and what we understand instinctively. We have no revelation from outside. And so we may say, well, you know, I'm really frightfully clever. But because we've rejected objective truth from outside, we may be clever on the kind of general rung of things on earth, but we're a little different to the beast's the animals of the field. We just go on instinct. What feels good? Here's my illustration. See if it'll run with you. So we used to keep chickens. We used to keep them in London. And I sometimes wondered to myself what they thought about all day. And the answer actually is nothing. But imagine two of our chickens chatting to one another on their perch one evening and one of them says to the other, you know, I'm the first one in my coop to have gone to university. I graduated with a PPE, Pecking, Perching, and Ecology, from Coxford. Far better than that other place, you know, Coxford, far better than Cheap Bridge. I've gone on to do further research, you know, and several of my papers were considered and taken up by some of the big beaks in the senior clucking room. Professor Henson, particularly liked my piece on early incubation and chick psychology. She found it (laughs) excellent. You see, they may be able to talk the two talk within the coop, but we know they're dumb. They may be able to sound highly intellectual, and they may win the crowing rights and might move slightly further along the perch in the pecking order. But really, they're just dumb chickens. All they can do is work on the base instincts of what they can see within the cage. That you are actually zooming somebody in Bolivia this week, I mean, it's completely beyond their bird brains. And the argument is essentially the same in verse 10. Once you cut out divine revelation, you may puff yourself up and award yourself with some rather silly kind of uh, accolades in academia and pin them on your feathers or whatever, feel you're terribly clever, but you're profoundly limited. You just operate within the cage, you dumb animal. That's... What Jude is suggesting? Just look at it again. These people, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. That is, they've rejected the faith once they're all delivered, divine revelation, and they are destroyed. But all by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively, sex feels good. This kind of sex feels good. That kind of sex should be explored. There are many voices. All that stuff about marriage, divine revelation, will bin that. Let's go on what we understand instinctively. Notice verse 11. Again, the three examples in verse 11 perfectly chosen. We haven't got time for them now. But the thing that struck me is that they're in the past tense. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Caller's Rebellion, it's almost as if the very second you think you can go beyond divine revelation in understanding what is right in the church, you have walked, you have abandoned, and you have perished. Because the second you puff yourself up in your theological arrogance and suggest you know better than God, woe betide you. Cain was the most arrogant of men. He killed his brother, fronted up to God. Am I my brother's keeper? Balaam was crossed between a witch doctor and an analyst, a kind of 10th century BC management consultant. He was good. I mean, he charged far more than he was worth. He got rich, like they do, but he did it for gain. He made a mint. Korah was so arrogant that he even challenged Moses. Once you step beyond the revealed truth of God, that's where you'll end up. So there we are. There's nothing new under the sun. Secret agents, dirty dreamers, ignorant beasts, the Church of England. God's seen it all before. Don't panic. How come Jude takes so long in the letter before he gets to how to contend? And I think it's because we are so naive. We're trying to bumble along. We need waking up. Why is the language so strong? Because we don't realize the stakes are so high. Don't panic. Don't be naive and don't despair because these people, you know, they effectively destroy themselves. Every church that has walked away from God's revealed truth ultimately is destroyed and you'll see it before your eyes, any church that has departed from the truth of God starts to dwindle. I mean, why be in a church where they don't believe in truth from God? I mean, it's a bit like being a banker who doesn't believe in money. It's really stupid. Let's pray. Thank you, our Father, that your word, your truth, speaks of mercy and peace and love. And we acknowledge that we don't deserve any of those things. We thank you for the Lord Jesus coming into this world. And that through his coming, we can know that we are beloved and kept We praise you for the gospel and we pray that through our life, through the decades, you would keep us in humility under
1: your word. In Jesus' name, amen.